Welcome to the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Join me for conversations about how to advocate for our kids in a one-size-fits-all world. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Welcome back. I'm excited to introduce you to Hunter Hansen. He describes himself as a mostly functioning autistic adult, data visualization professional, content creator, autism advocate, husband, and father of three girls. Welcome, Hunter. Thanks for having me, Emily. Good to be here. I so look forward to sharing your story uh, because there's a lot of parents out there with little hunters who wonder and frankly worry if their child's going to be okay, if they'll get a job, if they'll get married, if they'll have a child of their own. And while every person's journey and experience with autism is different, I think there's tremendous value in hearing about how you are thriving with autism. Yep, for sure. I'm glad to glad to feel like I'm thriving. <laughs> it's been a <laughs> no, it's been a it's been a long road, but that's that's part of what you know compelled me to really start opening up about this in the first place was just looking around at a dearth of you know autistic adults in the narrative you know, especially with just a lot of, not that it's wrong, but a lot of parents are getting more woke to autism in general. And that's where you hear a lot of the stories is as a parent, how do I navigate, understand, and really set my children, my autistic children up for success? And so I look back and realize, wait a minute, like what happens when your kids grow up? They like, that's me. I I have some story and experience and, you know, some highlights and lowlights to share. And it has been a it's been a ride thus far. So I'm I'm eager to do it. It's as soon as I think I'm gonna run out of content, you know, life happens and there's always a little bit more to share. So yeah, it's it's been something. And I love that you're so open about all of it, the goods, the bads, and the uglies. Cause we, you know, we're all human and we get it. It's not a perfect ride, but you're open about all of it. Yeah. And that is so helpful to parents of younger kids, because like you said, there's not as much talk from adults. So why do you think there isn't so much of that voice out there? Yeah, I I think part of it is that still, we're still moving away from a lot of the, the stigmas of it, right? Like I think autism in general is, it's becoming more understood, but it's still very misunderstood. The characterizations of it just in the media and elsewhere are they steer more toward like these either savant like stereotypes, which if you don't fit that, then, you know, where do you fit or it is more toward, you know, autistic people, children with a different set of needs, you know, where uh, they're not as independent, there's just different milestones that they hit some stronger sensory issues, you know, social uh, barriers. So there's, there's just not a really helpful bucket that it falls into. And, you know, in, in a lot of it, like a lot of adults are just not diagnosed or they haven't realized that, well, hey, a lot of these symptoms and challenges I'm facing in my life are actually products of autism or autism spectrum disorders. The other bit I think is it's a it's a negative positive or positive negative, depending on how you want to look at it. But parenting is a universal experience among parents. So you can usually relate to parenting with other parents and then parenting struggles and then oh specific parenting struggles and i think there's just a certain camaraderie with people in that vein to where that's you know 
that has become a lot of the narrative and it's not bad, but I think for me, it's a big educational opportunity to where I, you know, like, Hey, we're, we're chatting here, but I've seen and gotten a lot of uh, direct responses, feedback from others looking for, Hey, I'm not autistic. I can't like exactly communicate the same way with my autistic child to understand what they're going through and frame this the right way. But you're an adult and I can talk with you as an adult and as a parent and you're autistic, mm-hmm. you know, I'm very different and I'm individual. My experience on the spectrum is my own and, you know, we're all unique in different ways. So it's good to help, but I think it's, it's kind of overcoming and being able to be vulnerable despite stigmas to realize, Hey, this is a product of autism as an adult. And then again, kind of breaking into where a lot of the narrative is just dominated by sometimes well-meaning neurotypical people who it's like, yeah, you, you may have some insight into it, but we're, we're at the epicenter and we want that story to be more our own. Mm, I love that. Oh, you said so many good things in there, but I want to talk about your journey of being diagnosed with autism because you weren't right at the start. Your family noticed that something was a little different, but it wasn't very obvious to anyone at that point that it was autism. Yeah. It's, you know, I was a, I was an eighties baby, right? So you think like the, the late eighties, early nineties, you know, the, the music was great, you know, like just really (laughs) different time in, in America and in the world, but not so much for understanding neurodiversity in general. So I, I was the oldest of five siblings and being the firstborn, my parents, I, you know, I'd asked them like, did you guys like not interact with other kids? They didn't have a lot of good comparative experience when I was growing up. So they, they had no real good baseline of normal, you know, like do two-year-olds read the encyclopedia, you know, do they point out signs or, you know, like, do they identify credit card companies in the window at age one? Like, you may throw that to a non-parent today and you may not really get a good answer, right? So there were just a lot of, you know, like smart kid style things that they originally thought it was that were coupled with just some unknown stressors at the time. I don't think they went to a mall for the first four years of my life because it was just, it was an overload that I couldn't handle. I'd lose it. Since gotten better nowadays, even though there's not much of, you know, a mall experience that's worth going to for me anymore. But nonetheless, like, it's just hard to frame that as like, is this normal for kids? Do some kids freak out at the mall or in loud environments? Do they really lose control of things when their environment is disrupted? And frankly, they they didn't know. And there wasn't a good baseline until my brother was born three years later. And then they started having suspicions like, okay, what's wrong with this kid? And they meant, they meant, they meant him, not me. So, like, why isn't he talking at age three? Why isn't he reading in preschool? And then they realized like, whoa, okay, this one's the normal one or quote unquote normal. And Hunter is, is kind of a different and unique child. So it's, this isn't, this isn't my parents' story, but, you know, just through the course of being, you know, military brat and having multiple siblings and just kind of dealing with a lot of different changes, there was, you know, Hunter off to himself who could compensate with so many other things, good at school, didn't have to worry about him being a, a problem child academically. You know, I, I cleaned my own room. I was, I was the weird kid who made his own bed. I was very tidy. So if you can, if you have a kid who lines up their shoes, makes their own bed, does a lot of those, you know, obedient chore doing kid kind of things, 
that didn't really call for as much involvement. But I think a lot of the social stuff just kind of went as a product of, hey, this just might be a consequence of what really smart kids endure. But it wasn't until, you know, my later teens and, you know, kind of my parents exploring and getting exposed to more formal diagnostic criteria. And kind of as they tell the story, it was it was kind of like a diagnosis and discovery all in one where you know, my mom was, you know, she was in the Navy as a, as a nurse and, you know, kind of alongside a diagnostic panel to where they were describing kids. And she realized like, wait a second, like they're, they can't be talking about Hunter. He's at home. And they finally all put it together, you know, at 16, which was uh, not too late, but comparatively late in this day and age in terms of Mm -hmm. like, wow, okay, this is, this is autism criteria. This explains a lot of Hunter's challenges with routine, with sensory overload, with not understanding social grammar, with being rigid about things, you know, hyperlexic, but poor and other, you know, like mathematical capacities and other things. So it was, it was a bit of a, you know, an interesting, I don't want to say I I suffered, but I really had to navigate a lot of things on my own as my parents tried to figure out like what works just for me rather than understanding, Hey, this works because you know what routines are important for autistic people like Hunter to structure and predict their life and reduce variables so that they can deal with, you know, enough social interaction without being worried about X, Y, and Z. So, but yeah, I was, I was 16 and that was the year I went to college. So we had a short window of discovery and figuring things out. And then I was, I was way off on my own going to college in a different country and kind of uh, figuring out that landscape on my own there. Wow. So would you say getting a diagnosis was a positive thing or an unwelcomed thing at the time? Yeah. I I think at the time I kind of just processed it pretty neutrally because we were going to have dinner in about five minutes and I was (laughs) tired and I knew I had to go to work because of like, you know, yes, I was a working 16 year old. So I had very grown up responsibilities like that's Mm -hmm. great, but I got to go to work tomorrow. I I think it was welcome from the standpoint of, okay, this is something specific, unwelcome, because then I felt like I I had a classifier, like, great, I'm one of these people. But I was I was young and I didn't realize that, hey, I'm not deficient, I'm different. And it took me about a decade to kind of reconcile that this is this is just a difference. It's not marking a deficiency. It's not something I should be ashamed of. I think had I learned about it and known more about where I could get support, that would probably be all right. But knowing like, wow, these are the reasons that I struggle and that I'm not alone and that maybe this is what I can do to navigate it uh, could have been more welcome than it was. But I think in retrospect, it's I'm glad I know because then I can help others kind of begin that process of discovery too. Exactly. Oh, I love I'm not deficient. I'm just different. But initially, it felt more like a deficiency to you because you chose not to talk about your diagnosis. You described it as locking it away because you didn't like the stigma. So there was quite some time where you didn't address it publicly, Mm -hmm. but things changed in 2018. So talk us through why that changed and why you felt at that time that it was important to start speaking out. Yeah, it's a lot happened between, you know, college and and 2018. So I actually began a pretty, you know, productive career. I, you know, I got married, had two of my children at that time. And I, I was kind of at a very low point in, you know, my personal and professional life. And it was just, it was kind of a dark time where, 
you know, not being in the routine of work, probably like some massive sleep deprivation, looking at <laughs> yes, another, like, that's you. enough to do it on its own. But I realized I had been framing my life from a certain point of, I would say it's like a, like a hyper amped version of autistic masking to where it wasn't a mask. It was like a suit. I, you know, like at work and other places I go by H2 and that almost became its own persona. And I started interpreting my, like my own conduct. There's Hunter and then there's H2 and what you get is H2, but Hunter is not anywhere near as gregarious and, you know, happy, et cetera. But, you know, H2 can project all those positive attributes. And then, like, I'd written in, like, an anonymous blog, too. And I just found that I was starting to see fissures in this. And not necessarily living life as, like, a fake, but realizing that I was not being my authentic self. And I was being, you know, I was miserable. So I remember just kind of revisiting and thinking, what if I just decided to, like, in full interest of vulnerability and transparency, do just that? kind of restart and like really share my true life narrative, you know, and I remember looking up like a cutesy blog title, you know, like I, nobody, <laughs> nobody had claimed the life autistic. And I like how it sounded like, you know, that Anderson film, Wes Anderson, I don't remember which Anderson it was, the life aquatic. So I'm like, that's a cute little wordplay. Let's restart, you know, kind of revisiting my journey as the life autistic and the real Hunter Hansen. You know, yeah, I still like H2. It's fun. But I wanted to share more of me and my story as a, like what I call a mostly openly autistic person and professional. And I thought like at first, hey, this would help, you know, people like me or hey, this will help justify the ways of Hunter to others. Only to realize that like I had, I don't want to call it an audience, but just people where they needed somebody else to just come out and say it. Like, you know, it was never, oh, I always knew you were weird and it helps to know why, but it was more, I had no idea. Or I know somebody with an autistic son who, you know what, they do remind me an awful lot like you. And they speak of them positively. Like, do you like this person's autistic son or do you like this autistic friend? And they do. Or, hey, I think my son may have some of these challenges. Or, hey, I never felt comfortable about sharing this about myself in a work environment or with others, but seeing you do it as openly and not getting completely castigated for it, not completely, you know, it was, so it was more liberating. And like, who knew that being yourself could be the best course of action? But, but here we are, it is, it is not fraught, it is not completely without its perils. And sometimes it just feels unnerving to say, this is how I feel. I don't know if this is normal. I'm not trying to make excuses. I'm just trying to tell you who I am, why autistic people act the way they do, how some of this is my autism. Some of it's just me being individually idiosyncratically odd or what have you. So it's, yeah, it's like, I want to keep going with that. I, I like keeping it open and, you know, there's stuff I don't share. I'm not, I don't disclose literally everything. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty good shopkeeper when it comes to having an open facade and veneer to where you can see everything I, I feel needs to be seen and brought out. And it's been good. And I feel thus far, it's, it's been helpful, not just for me, but for others who are either on this journey themselves or guiding others through it. Oh, definitely. And I think to your point, sometimes other people need that permission to speak out themselves. And you have definitely been a leader in giving that confidence to others to share their story. And I think it's funny because you you called it an open secret at work. 
It sounds like a lot of people said, you know, finally. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's, I don't, I still to this day, I don't just come up and tell people, well, you know, due to my autism or whatever, I, I'm a little sheepish about it, but there's code like, oh, hey, I, I read your LinkedIn post or, hey, I saw this thing. And then I know like, okay, you're disclosed. I can, I can unbox it. But I, so there's some elements where, you know, work for, you know, they're really understanding. They're really progressive. So it's not like I feel like I'm stigmatized or whatever. I'm just shy. And, you know, I'd, I'd rather tell jokes that, you know, will get people laughing so I can get stuff done. But I do like that it's, it's an ongoing thing. And that this this may be it may not be a battle or some barrier that I have to break down, but others may need to do so to where like, hey, if Hunter can do this, you know, maybe this is something where I can be just a little more brave and help broaden my horizons and make a better experience. So, yeah, it's it's just again kind of a joking way to to look at it, but it's a good it's a good conversation starter. I I. I appreciate people's respect with it. If they want to prompt me to discuss it, I'm pretty open, but I don't foist it on anybody. I don't make it awkward because I don't know where people are in their understanding of the autism spectrum. You know, they may have gotten it from, you know, like the good doctor or whatever to where, you know, Hunter, I would expect you to be more of a savant here or, you know, hey, don't you have an autistic superpower? And I, I, I don't know what those preconceived notions are. So we've we've thus far been able to, to tread lightly, but gracefully, you know, here in the, here in the workspace and beyond. So do you feel like the stigma for autism has changed at all over time? I think in general, we've become a more like empathetic and understanding society as a whole. We have got a long way to go in many corners and there are a lot of just really terrible cases that you read about. You throw your stick far enough in social media, you'll hear of somebody being just absolutely wronged related to their experience, you know, as an autistic individual. So there's still that. But I feel like it is far less a death sentence. And I remember, I think it was on the road with my parents and, you know, there was a mom talking about her son and, you know, describing all the things. And yeah, and he's, he's autistic and her tone just kind of downshifted. Mind you, this was 2009. I think as we get a better understanding of this and the more that it's just out there, not just from, you know, awareness efforts, but even depictions, I think we're seeing a, a lesser stigma in general. But there's still, again, miles to go on that. I think people still end up going with the extremes to where you think autistic and it's still going to bucket into like, well, are you quote unquote high functioning, like one of those smart autistics, you know, and I say that in jest or, you know, like, well, is it like, can he not talk? Does he stem or flat? And again, it falls into these categorizations that are just not well understood. I think what's been interesting is that the more I've talked, I had somebody, you know, kind of state it really well that I am normalizing something that was once way more stigmatized than it was to where like autistic people have stable jobs. I've got a house. I can drive. Not the best, but I can. I, I'm great with words. I'm good enough with numbers to where I have a, you know, I'm, I'm a professional business analyst. Like I do that for a living. I get paid to do that. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm still married. It's been, you know, over a decade. So I've been able to manage that successfully. You can ask my wife. It's been a challenge on, on her end. Not so much mine because she's fabulous. <laughs> but a father who I manage three loud children, two louder dogs, and it's not so much like I, 
I'm not autistic light. I'm an autistic person who has just managed a very, you know, quote unquote, normal life you know, through it, in some cases uh, enhanced by it, like I can keep the house pretty tidy. <laughs> like I'm, you leave me home alone and like it gets clean, but sometimes challenging, like, okay, just talking about the holidays, like this stresses me out very differently from others. And like, can we just not do presents? Can we not see anybody? Can we just pretend like it's normal? And so, yeah, I, I think the more that we kind of normalize that it is a different normal for many people, but yeah, it's again, I think the landscape is improving. I think there's still a long way to go just with people who, again, have a different experience with the spectrum. You know, I I have very different triggers. I've had some situational adaptations that I I simply had to overcome. You know, I was, was in college at 16. Like, I had to learn a lot. I had a full-time job at 15. There were some interesting lessons I learned along the way. But not everybody is going to have that same experience or the same home life or the same set of environmental benefits and lack of challenges to where, hey, maybe a loud noise is enough to like violently throw off your day and you really need to retreat and recover. And that's a valid experience that I think we, we've got to be a lot more aware of so that we can better think of our world's design as, is this accommodating and beneficial and does it enhance you know, the positive attributes of autistic people in general. So yeah, luckily that's not all there yet because then I can still advocate and, you know, help bring awareness and not just awareness, but acceptance and not just acceptance, but appreciation for that, for skills, for talents and not so much, quote, coping and helping us compensate for deficits perceived or otherwise. How can we make more progress on that front? by removing the stigma and creating that appreciation, that respect, what can we do, particularly those um, who are outside of the autistic community? What can we do? Yeah, I think it's twofold. There's like a whole list and I'm not the best qualified person to give the manifesto, but the biggest, it kind of ties in with that is just really helping promote autistic voices. There is nothing inherently wrong with autistic allies, right? But I, I mean, to use a very specific example, you know, let's say I'm a passionate advocate for the the blind or the deaf, right? It would be wrong for me, for my narrative to consume the narratives of deaf people and blind people who are articulating their experience, their benefits, what they do. Like it's, it may be good, but I don't want to be an ally who's overstepping into that turf. And, you know, there are many people who I know who are really good at this. They, they're strong allies and they're good to where they share their experience, but then they elevate like, Hey, this person, they're autistic. This is the, these are the kinds of people who you want to hear and understand. And this is where you should be getting your perspective from. So, you know, like there's the Hollywood version of it. There's the, Mm -hmm. there's, I, I think some aggressive warrior ally types that, and some organizations that, you know, they may not be the best representatives of autism and autistic people, but people who are authentically actually autistic trying to share like, no, hey, this is what it's like. Like, we don't need you to do X, Y, and Z. I, <laughs> I, just, I just need this. And here's what will help. Like, you know, like quiet zones in the workplace, no hot desking, you know, just like more circumspect understanding of like noise and other stressors. Like that's, that's something coming from us is way more authentic The second best is it's a simple human thing and it's just assuming positive intent and being able to ask good questions. 
I I mean, and this is something you can do human to human. So if you know Hunter, he's a nice guy. He's, you know, well-meaning. He will do as much as he can to help you. But he said this one thing that makes him sound like a jerk. If you're not assuming positive intent, you're going to say, you know what? All that good stuff doesn't matter because he's a jerk because he said one jerk thing. And he's weird and different. And you know what? He's probably a jerk at heart. And I've I, I've suffered from that lack of assumed and positive intent. And I would have liked a world to where that did not happen as often. But among those who kind of know what I advocate, I had a recent incident to where I I realized like, wow, I'm getting tart. I'm getting sour. And I had to say like, hey, I, I realized I was a little terse with this. But before I could finish, this person said, hey, are you okay? And it's like, I just needed a break to talk about, no, I'm not okay. Thanks for understanding that you know me, you know that I'm autistic, you know that I'm prone to expressing different stressors in a way to where I'm I'm not going to shut down. I'm going to try to respond and be social, but I may do so in a way that comes across terse. And it's like, that's not just assumed positive intent, but practiced. And it's like that that's perfect because you're not going to know who's autistic and who isn't. You know, I try to, I try to telegraph it. So you have no, (laughs) you know, so you get it, but not everybody's disclosed. And I've sadly, I've fallen short on this with others to where I've had to come around and say, this person may be just like me. Maybe I need to reframe this to where I know their attributes. They may very well be undisclosed, but let me just assume positive intent ask a good question. Or if I don't ask, just say like, you know what? They're, they're not a jerk. They're not rude. They're not being dismissive. They're not unwilling to collaborate. They just work differently. And I need to embrace and understand them for who they are. Those are the biggies for me. I'm hearing three things in what you're saying. So first, be aware of preconceived notions. Two, create a space to express needs and also listen to needs. And the work that I do, I talk all the time about advocating for our needs and the needs of others. And that can be tricky when we bump up against each other, right? Because your needs are different than mine. So how do we negotiate that? But it starts with feeling free to express the needs. And that's important, especially with our kids too. I think teaching them to express their needs as early on as possible is so beneficial. And the third is assuming the positive intent. And I'll tell you what, I think there would be an incredible amount of family and workplace drama that would also be eradicated if we assumed positive intent. So that is just helpful across the board, like you said, in all human interactions. So my last question for you, Hunter, what advice do you have for those families with the little hunters, you Mm -hmm. know, with, with people that are parenting, shepherding these young ones that have, or, or maybe are in the process of getting a diagnosis of autism? What, what would you like to tell them? Yeah. Wow. Quite a few things. Patience is great. I I actually, since I do talk with other, you know, parents of autistic children about their similar hunters and huntresses alike, mm-hmm. you know, my my stances are just like, you know, you are you are learning as they are learning. They don't know themselves quite yet. There's some really deep-seated elements that they are going to really they don't quite know how to process their place on the spectrum. They're exhibiting symptoms. 
So understanding that, hey, you may not get a very clear articulation of what's going on, but being, being a good patient student of your own child, like I think knowledge is it's more than winning half the battle in this one, just in terms of like what works, what doesn't, what kind of, you know, and I, I, I'm almost mean as a parent about this because I'm extremely structured. And because of that, my house ends up very structured. I'm fortunate to have a lot of that. But some people just don't know they're a chaotic wreck. And it's like, you may need to understand that you might just need a little bit of structure to better frame your children's understanding, make it predictable. Not everybody's situation is as clear cut. I get it, but it can always be clearer. There can always be more of, okay, if bedtime is in a, a spectrum range of five hours, that's probably not beneficial. Maybe there's ways to tranche that and understand like, okay, are there things that stress here? What tends to work? What doesn't? So I guess being a good patient student, you know, seeking understanding is also is also good. I I don't mind people who are advocates, but you know, listening to autistic people sharing their experience, I I can't share exactly what it was like when I was four, but those four year olds get to 14, 24, 40 pretty quick, and some things never change. And you know, really seeking that kind of honest perspective is great because you're not, you're going to get, you know, no shortage of people who want to help. And then looking into resources, just knowing that, hey, if this is, if this could possibly be autism or something on the neurodiversity spectrum, ADHD and other elements, you know, seek that out. Like it's, at least it's good to, you know, rule it out and attribute it to some other things that may need support. But I think, you know, I think I look at myself as part of like the final generation of having parents who just didn't know any better based on the times. But now we've got an abundance of resources, uh, a lot of voices out there. You can just Google it. You can find people in your area. Autism spectrum is way more common than people assume. And you're not alone. There are others who navigate this to varying degrees of difficulty and success to where you you do you, but you can always do you smarter and more empathetic and understanding. And, you know, some of it's just straight up parenting too. <laughs> you know, like you want to do what's best for your kid, but just understanding like what kid wouldn't want a surprise birthday party? Well, I didn't like surprise birthday parties. You know, now you know, hey, this may not be the best. And then when you discover, okay, this is this is my child's thing. This is where their autism is, str- is a strong part of it. Or, hey, they're really unique in this aspect and they like this independent of autism or what have you. And empower your kids to express their needs. Yes. And uh, be willing to respond accordingly. Yeah. It's, yeah. I'll, I'll share a tiny story. I just, this last Friday, I was, I was flying solo as a dad, you know, so my wife, she stays pretty involved with, with teaching. She's, she's just so good at it to where if she can substitute teach, I, I really try to say like, Hey, let me, I can handle work and the kids you go teach. My middle child just would not, for whatever reason, she was just clingy, just wouldn't let me put her down. And, you know, she gets heavy after all. And I just had to remember my own lesson that this, this isn't wrong. She's not doing it to be malicious. She's just expressing that she doesn't feel good and she has needs and she wants to be comforted. And I thought, you know, as an autistic dad, I don't like my space (laughs) crowded. I don't like having to like, like the physical sensation of hanging onto a weight while trying to clean a mess. But I had to balance that out with like, what would I tell myself if, 
you know, my daughter, you know, had some specific needs if this was her comfort mechanism. So I, yeah, I'm still learning too. And it was good for me to reckon that this isn't a right, wrong thing in this spot. This is just, I have a need and I need to lean in to try to meet, you know, a little two-year-old's need to be held for just 15 minutes. It was great. And I did some squats too. So I could at least get a workout in and, you know, had my oldest watch my youngest for a time. And then it was, and then it was fine. So it was good to broaden my own horizons as I understood even my own neurotypical children's horizons too. And it, it worked in reverse. Well, that's a beautiful story. And I'm glad you shared that with us. Hunter, if listeners want to follow your story and continue to hear more from you, how can they do that? Yep. I recommend two things. Thelifeautistic.com is my, my, my words element. So I do one post a week there. But if you want kind of the, the latest and greatest, I would check out my YouTube channel, which if you find it via Hunter Hansen, The Life Autistic, you know, I've got a couple hundred subscribers and it's been really resonant and powerful as much as I enjoy writing. I've enjoyed bringing more of my family and my experience into the video medium as well. So it's pretty funny. I try to make it entertaining enough to where, you know, anybody autistic or not autistic would want to watch. So if you got those two, you're covered. And I've got links to the rest of my social channels through those. And we'll be sure to link all of that to your episode page. So everybody go to mothersofmisfits.com, check out Hunter's page so you can get all those resources there. Hunter, I could talk to you for days. I so appreciate your humor, like you talked about, and just your honesty. It really is such an example to all of us. And I do believe that we're all misfits in one way or another. And I see that as a great thing because there is no fit in. We're all unique. And as you said, that's just a difference, not a deficiency. So thanks again, Hunter. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Emily. Much appreciated. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We also invite you to visit us at mothersofmisfits.com.